this is the time for the recording. Um, so how many people are rooting for Atlanta? Raise your hands. If you're rooting for Atlanta, doesn't mean who you think is going to win. How many people are rooting for Atlanta? Put your hands up. I want you to see that something here. Okay. Now, how many people are rooting for the Patriots? People, you see that? People hate the Patriots. Deflate one ball, and everybody hates you forevermore. <laughs> Eight balls. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, really, did any hands go up? That's unbelievable, isn't it? That was okay. There you go. All right. Well, we're gonna root for you then. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. Uh, so, God has been doing an amazing thing in for years now. But at the beginning of the year, in a pattern that He's been doing over and over, He told us what we were gonna be working on for the next season. And the thing that he told us who we're going to be working on is how do you connect with, how do you really um, bond with somebody who has beliefs in some area, maybe you're, maybe you're the same on 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 or 99 out of 100, but there's one area in which you have disagreement and that area is significant. It is a big deal. Now, what he did in this election, I believe with all of my heart, it isn't about the election and it isn't about the politics everybody thinks it's about. I think that God drove a truck right through something that was going on in the body of Christ, which is a oneness that hadn't actually gotten to the depth that he wanted it to get to. And he drove a truck right through the middle in a way that has caused divisions that we did not know were there. Divisions in belief and so on in a way that has been remarkable in how strident it has been, understanding this. There's, there's, I think we're down to about 15% on one side that's still being very vocal, even though the number of people that are passionate about it is still probably at the 30% on one side and 30% on the other. But we're down to about 15% that are willing to really talk about it because everybody's sick of it, including the vast middle. Which, but, but here's the point. See, now watch. When we do that, there is a problem. I mean, on the one hand, God, please shut up. Okay, right? I'm just sick of it. And I'm sick of the way you're doing it and all this kind of stuff. But, but I do want to say something. That is a kind of a sweeping under the rug in a sense, right? We don't have to talk about it on Facebook. We don't have to talk about it on. So I'm not arguing for that. But what I am saying is, is we don't get to oneness by ignoring our differences. In fact, let me just give you a principle right here that I think is just a super important principle for us. Here's what God is actually trying to do. Is any of us as large as God? I'm getting there, but is anybody, <laughs> right? I mean, we, I mean, it's together that we begin to manifest the wholeness that is God, right? And so the point is, if you get two people who are identical and they come together, do they make a larger image of God? No. It's when you get people to come together and be one that all of a sudden the differences start to add up to more than what was there before and could be there before in just an individual. You see it? So this pattern that God is doing, this thing that he's doing is extremely important. Again, it's not about politics at all, not really. That's the object lesson that he's using to show the church something about real oneness, which is the real oneness, the one that's going to make the difference, the one that's going to image God in his more beautiful fullness is the one that has to do with difference. This is what he's doing in the body of Christ. Now, in the body of Christ, he's told us to be one, so you don't have a choice. Okay? And you don't be one, like I say, by sweeping it under the rug and just ignoring it. You be one by actually dealing with it. We're going to deal with it. I don't know how much longer it's going to take, but we're going to deal with it as long as God is dealing with it in order to make people actually understand how to become one with somebody with whom you have significant difference in a belief. Right? But here's what God did last week. That is, he took us to a whole nother level and he started showing us how this isn't just about politics. Because think about something. The idea of becoming one with somebody else, the idea of becoming connected and bonded or, or relating to somebody who has different beliefs than you do, that's not just politics, that's evangelism. You believe something about God. You believe something in your heart that is so obvious to you. 
And then you go to somebody, and it isn't obvious to them at all. <laughs> it couldn't be a larger difference in how you see the world and what's going on. You see it? There's this enormous gulf between the two of you, and yet God is telling you, go to them and somehow make a connection with them. How? <laughs> really, right? You can, you, can, you can go after the things in which you agree, which you should be doing, and that will make a connection. But until you deal with what's different between, you're not going to get to the place that God's trying to get us to. Right? The, the thing I'm saying in the shorthand, and we all know this, but the idea is you have to get outside of who you are. For evangelism, for politics, for everything. You have to get outside of who you are in order to really be able to make a connection with somebody. That doesn't mean you have to change. You don't have to become a liberal to identify and connect with a liberal. They would prefer that, as would conservatives. You don't have to do that, though. What you do have to do is find this other layer. And the, f the first thing you have to do, this is the book. I've, I've, I remember something here, what God did. Remember how I always say God goes before? About, what was it? Um, halfway through the the primary season, God brought, and we did a series of sermons on the righteous mind. And I'm going to just briefly talk about it a second from now, but the bottom line in righteous mind is, is here's what he's saying. I want to see some, why good people are divided by politics and religion. And this New York Times comment is, is exactly correct. This is a landmark contribution to humanity's understanding of itself the differences that exist out there. This is, I believe that this should be required reading in every classroom. And in fact, let me tell you, I think it's actually going that way because I'm starting to see now TED Talks and all kinds of things that are starting to take the insights in this book and, and drive them down into places where people would get a hold of them. But the basic idea, real simple, is this. There's six different planks. Liberals use some of those planks in a certain fashion, and conservatives use some of those planks in a certain fashion. And the fact of the matter is, they do not see what the other person sees because of that. These planks are way below your thought. Remember there was the, the, this idea of the guy riding an elephant? And we in our ego like to think that as the, as the guy that's riding the elephant, we're telling the elephant where to go. But the metaphor in the picture is actually telling us this. The elephant is going wherever it wants, and the rider is just justifying why. It feels right to them. So it feels like they're the one that told the elephant the way to go. But the fact is, there's something happening deep inside of all of us that is natural to us, that is causing us to think the way that we do. And the key to the book is, is understanding that when people are divided on these things, good people are divided because they really do see the world quite differently. And the point that I'm trying to make right now, which we all understand because it's just first grade stuff, except that we all seem to be stuck in kindergarten somewhere on this. Because, and I say all, but not all, but because I know a lot of people are, are already starting to transcend. And they're starting to try and say, if I don't understand why you're saying what you're saying, as a good person, if I don't understand what's in it that is true, if I'm not, I'm not appropriating the part of God that's in there, that's important for me to remember, whether it's natural to me to remember it or not. If I don't do that, I'm missing part of God. That doesn't mean everything they say is correct. It doesn't mean everything you say is correct. It just means what we need to be doing is understanding why people are saying what they're saying, right? So that we can understand what is to be absorbed and to change you and to respectfully do the same back. Hopefully that same thing will happen, see? Are, are we there? Because, because, and now here's what I'm saying. See, that's politics, and everybody just goes naturally to politics on this because God's given us a great object lesson right now that we're all keen to. But understand, I'm not talking about politics right now. I'm talking about evangelism. If you're not understanding what that other person is feeling and thinking, you can't reach them. You're projecting on them what you think. And you're expecting them to act according to the way that you would think. And then you judge them for not, judge, for not going the way that you think. And the fact is, they don't think the way that you think. They don't see the world the way that you see it at all. 
here's what we're doing today. In terms of popularity, in terms of what people want to do, you start way up at the top and I was going to say sex, but I shouldn't say that. So, But somewhere up high is things you like. And then you go down the list. And you go way, way, way down the list. And at some point in time, you hit death, which is something most people don't want to do. And then underneath that is taxes. <laughs> and then underneath that is the dentist. <laughs> it's sadomasochism in any other culture, in any other terms. Okay, but there's the dentist, and then underneath that, for most Christians too, is evangelism. It's just true. People do not want to do this. What if something could happen today that would completely change your thinking about evangelism? And I'm not saying in a direct way like to make you go, oh, I mean that God would say something today that would cause you to think about evangelism in such wholly different terms that it simply became something entirely different to you. Would that be a good thing? Would that be helpful? Would that cause us to actually do what God has told us to do, which is go into all the world? Right? Make disciples. Would it cause us to actually do what he's asking us to do and he's empowered us to do and he's given us to do and there's a thing in us that wants to do that. It's just that there's this other thing that is causing us not to want to do that. And what if we were able to somehow get that out of the way so that the wanter started coming up and we really started reaching out in a way that was, honestly, honest to goodness, was as natural and easy as breathing. It was just the most simple thing that you could do and it's because it just rejiggered everything in you. So that's how we're going today. Who's our prayer? Isaac Parsons. This is awesome. Isaac and Amber. Uh, yeah, I just love you guys so much. They're old Lake Sammers, and I don't mean by that old, even though we're all getting older. What I mean is, is they were at Lake Sam for many, many years, and they moved quite far north, and they were at a church, and it was a really wonderful church, and so on. But that church has closed down, and now they're back here, and he's doing worship. And... And you need to get to know both of them because she will say things that are the funnest things you've ever heard. Okay? She just will. She has a way of doing things that just make life more sparkly. Okay? So it's quite serious, but it's wonderful. So Isaac, love you. you got the heart of a just gold. So pray for the sermon, would you? Lift up another church too. Yes, God, we, uh, we come today and we want to learn from you and we want to hear from you. God, we want to, to grow in you um, deeper and wider. Uh, God, we pray that you would anoint the words that, that you have brought to Kurt and that you have brought for this congregation. Um, we pray that you would, would transform and change with that. Um, and God, we pray for Imprint Church in Woodenville. God, we pray for authentic and real uh, discipleship to be done this morning. Um, and God, we pray that you would move that church in your direction as well. Uh, God, we pray for every aspect of this service. We pray that you would have your, your fingerprints all over every part. Amen. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Is that, I can't quite see with the lights and I can't remember, but that is, this is your pastor, right? Okay. I love you. This is a great man, great man of God. Such a heart for planting churches, doing it in Canada just remarkably, and here too. Really great to have you here. Love you. Okay, we got a chance to sit at lunch one day, and it was, I really fell in love with this guy. So, right by Isaac. And I'm sorry, first name again? Gary. Gary, that's right. Okay, I was trying to remember and just, I brain freeze so bad last week that I actually forgot the name of the person that I was praying for and then told her that her husband was dead if he was sitting right next to her. <laughs> so, you know, it happens, okay? All right. So, all right, all right, uh, I was going to ask for testimonies, but I went on a little long. I was going to ask for testimonies about what we're doing with these leather things. I'm not going to do that today because I just want to keep to time, uh, but, but the bottom line is, is I want you to be thinking about it. We're going to start getting testimonies from the leather things. If you don't know what that means, you will by the end of the sermon, okay? So I'm skipping over that one. Uh, last week, what we did is, is we started with a new passage in Luke as we're going through Luke. And what we did is we got stuck on the very first verse. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, remember, he's at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of his time with the disciples. 
He's trying to bring home the most important lessons that they need. They don't know that he's about to leave them. He does. He's told them, but they still don't get it. And the bottom line is, is that he's trying to fill them up with stuff so that they'll be able to thrive, not just survive, but thrive after he's gone, okay? So what he does is, is he's going and he gets to the war between Galilee and Samaria. And what we looked at last week was Samaria is the Samaritans who were, you take Gentile pigs and Samaritans are way underneath that because they were the cursed people. Okay, from God. And so there's this huge problem with Samaritans. Jews feel like because they're cursed, they can't even step in their land without defiling themselves, becoming unclean as a Jewish person. Okay, so, and, and what we see Jesus doing is going to them quite regularly and no problem. And right here he's showing them, hey, go to them. Okay, now, having said that, here's the rest of the verse. As he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priest. Let me just say something. Go show yourself to the priest. That's not a Samaritan thing. That's a Jewish thing. So there's clearly several Jewish people in this tent. I, I even think that it's possible that, this, that the Samaritan who came back is the only one that was Samaritan. I don't know that that's true. It's just pure speculation. But it's an interesting thought because it helps you understand something. As they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he'd done. The man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where's the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now, the place where we're starting in this today is Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where's the other nine? Now, I, I want to bring it home what a, what a remarkable thing this actually is. First, I don't know that there's another place in Scripture. Jesus heals big crowds, but he does it one at a time. There are a few places where he heals a couple. I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think this is the only place I can think of where he heals a group en masse like this. Now watch. They're walking away, and what disease do they have? Leprosy. Let me make an argument that leprosy might be the worst disease ever. It's not fatal, but it's almost worse than fatal. There are some things where death is a kindness. Now, I wouldn't want to go that far because lepers certainly don't want to die. But I want you to understand psychologically and physically what's going on. Physical first. I was going to show you some pictures and I just decided, no. I, and the reason why, no, just have compassion on me. I was trying to have compassion on you. You have these growths that happen oftentimes. There's different kinds of leprosy, by the way. But, but most of them will have some sort of growths that will happen that make them, and I'm using the word advisedly, they make them grotesque. We, it doesn't matter. We should all be adults. And we should be able to look at a person that has a disease that is no fault of their own and see past any skin growths and so on and not have the reaction that we have and think of them just as a human being. That's where we should be, right? The elephant man kind of thing, right? That's where we should be. But you do understand we have to work at that. Our first reaction is a different reaction than that. It's one of revulsion. Now, how would you like to be the person that people were revulsed by, and you didn't do anything. It's not your fault. It just happened. I mean, what a horrible thing, right? Well, it gets worse. See, the, the reason why they will lose limbs and so on, it turns out, we learned this in the 1800s, it turns out that leprosy is a bacterial disease. So it is transmittable. But it's a bacterial disease that essentially destroys the nerves to the point that a leprous person can literally put their hand in a fire and it doesn't mean anything to them. It's as if it's not, it's as if they just threw a piece of leather in there. And it can burn and it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't feel, they don't feel it. So a lot of the reasons why, it's not that leprosy makes parts fall off, it's that sometimes you just literally damage them to the point that, you know, they get cut off or whatever. But the other thing that happens is when you and I get a little cut, some of us are more baby about it than others. I'm putting myself at the top of the baby pile. If I get a little bitty cut, my God, you know, this, the world's over until I do something about this, you know, and, right? I mean, it's just, I feel pain, okay? Lots of it, okay? Some people have high pain tolerances. They lose their hand. They're going, oh, where'd my hand go? But, you know, that's not me, okay? I get a little bitty cut. I'm 
I'm in for whatever it takes, right? Julie must come and nurse me for at least a moment. <laughs> Just kidding. But the point is, is if you get a cut and you don't know that you got a cut, it'll infect. And when it infects, that infection will cause you to end up having to amputate your hand. So this is what's happening with lepers on a physical level. But I want you to take this right here and see the metaphor that makes leprosy so devastating. It isn't the physical things. The physical things we can get past. People that work with lepers, and if you get to know somebody and you get to know them as a human being, you can look right past it. The thing that's hard about leprosy to me is you have to be removed completely from your family. The wife or the husband that you hugged, the children that you want to bring up into your lap, the people, the friends that you want to hug, you can't do that because it is transferable. It turns out to be less transferable, but it is transferable. Literally, in the, it was like in the 80s when we finally figured out the greatest bacterial cure, we, killed, we cured 16 million people. So this was a serious problem. Even though it's hard to communicate, it does communicate. So the Bible says something, and this is Leviticus. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease, they're talking about leprosy and others, but must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. Right there. Anybody in here want to do that? Anybody in here when you're walking through town, you know, you just happen to be going through a town, that's where the road leads, and you want to walk into town, and as you're walking through the town, you want to be walking along saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. Anybody think that that sounds like a fun thing to do? But it goes on and it says, uh, unclean, as long as the disease lasts, because it can heal, but, or at least to where it's not communicable, then they're ceremonially unclean, and here it is. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Now maybe in what we used to call leper colonies or maybe in these camps, you might have some relationship with those people, but who you do not have relationship with, at least in a intimate contact fashion anymore, is the people that you would long to touch. We are made to be one. And this creates a distance between that cannot be bridged at, lest it harm the person that you love. You see it? I just want to tell you, I think that psychological damage is what makes it so horrible. It's an irony, isn't it, that your body not feeling something would end up in your psyche feeling as bad a pain as almost you can get. You see it? Now, if you had this, and you had this for years, and you'd long to touch and to hold and to be with your loved ones, and then somebody said, go to the priest, and on the way, it was clear that you really could feel that something had happened because one of them saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus. But he saw that he was healed. The guy saw it. So whatever it was, whatever happened to them, it was clear to them that they were suddenly healed. And now what they're thinking is, is oh my God, I don't have this disease anymore in the physical, but oh my God, I get to be with my family again. I get to be with my loved ones again. Wouldn't this just bring up praise inside of you? Wouldn't this just bring up, oh my God, and wouldn't, I just want to say, for most of the people in here, I pray that your first reaction would be to go back to the person that did that and say, thank you. <laughs> praise you. Whatever it took, oh my God, you've just done the most remarkable, I never thought that this was ever going to happen. And you've just changed my entire life and brought back to me what is most precious. Praise you. Thank you. Now, I hope what I've done right here all of a sudden is make us think about the nine people that didn't come back. What in the world were they thinking? Maybe they're just so excited to go see their families and just run off and saw them. Or went to the priest first and say that they had the, could, could go do that. You see what I'm saying? But the point is, is wow. <laughs> I have to say, I'm going to have to change my understanding of what evangelism is. Because what I always think is, is if God would heal somebody, surely they would praise God. They would fall in love with him and they would come to him. Don't you think that? 
How many times have you thought that? Somebody's going through a horrible crisis and you're praying for God to touch them because when he touched them, surely what they're going to do is come back. But what if that's not true? What if what God is wanting us to get out of this story, and not just us, but the disciples, what if he's trying to point out something about people's responses to the things that God does? What if they see the world entirely differently than you do? When you see it, you have a heart that says, praise God. Now let me tell you why you have a heart that says that. You, us, that have that. Because we've been made new. So we have a new heart. And when God does something, we're, we have new eyes. We were blind and now we see. And we see the thing that God does and we go, oh my God, that is phenomenal, incredible, and this is beautiful. And we praise God instantly, don't we? But did you realize that the reason why you do that as a Christian is because of the new heart that you have? Do you realize that people that don't know him aren't necessarily doing that? They do not see this. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. King David. Here's a man who, as Scripture says, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. This is God's testimony. David was a man that was after my own heart. Now remember something, David was not a born-again Christian. David was not given a heart, like you and I have been, to see and to praise. So David stands rightly as a bright, shining example set on a tall hill by God of the difference in hearts. David is the unusual person who sees the things that God is doing and it provokes praise in him, even in his old heart, his old nature. You see that? In fact, let me show it to you a little bit more. We have this Bible reading program called SOAP, and I want to say something. When we first put up SOAP and we were still learning how long a sections and so on, I th a lot of people were doing SOAP at the very beginning in this congregation. And then sometimes they were too long, and so people quit doing it, and then we made them too short, and so people quit doing it. And, but I want to say something. We've refined this over the years, and we've got the length now to where they're very soapable. And what that simply means is they're just about the right section to have basically one really, really, really great idea in there that if you'll meditate on that and spend some time with it, it'll do something in your heart. And we've been doing it now for a few years at these lengths, and they've gotten really good. And I'm actually making a pitch for people that were doing soap and have gone to something else that you would come back and do soap. And here's one of the reasons why. is because we're on a journey together, right? And I want to show you what God did in my soaps two days this week, Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay? And I'd like us to be as much on the journey as we can. We're not, one size doesn't fit all around here. And if you have other ways of reading, I love you and do whatever you want to do. I don't care. But uh, there, is a, there is a heart that I would have that we would be as synced as, as we could, right? Now, with that having been said, here's how you get to a soap. You can do this on your phone, too. There's our website. It is horribly out of date. Please, no jokes about how bad it looks. It needs to be updated. But we're having trouble because we can't figure out how to get these discipleship parts. But there you go. You click on soap, and there's Wednesday's soap right there. Okay, and I'm going to come back to the other one later. I guess it was Wednesday and Thursday. But that's Psalm 145, and I just want to show you what this psalm says. The heart of a person that hasn't been saved and how he sees the world. Here's what God is elevating. By the way, it sits right in the middle of the Bible, and I think that that's not by accident. I think God wanted to show us in the middle of the Bible, in the heart of the Bible, what the heart of God and the heart of a man who's after God is. Okay? And so here's what he says. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. Listen to this guy. Right? He is the most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let people proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspired deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. All of your works will thank you, Lord. All of your works will thank you, Lord. What's he talking about? Us. Do we? Eh. And your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds, about the majesty and glory of your reign. Now, having said that, you see this heart that is responding to the things in the world that God is doing with praise. You see it? Now watch. The next day, Psalm 146, 
Davidic again. It doesn't say it's Davidic. I, I'm 90% confident as our commentators it is, but nonetheless, praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Sounds like the same guy, doesn't it? But the bottom line is, watch this. Now, I've, I've reformatted this because I want you to see something. He made the heaven, the earth, and everything in them. Now, he's saying, God made the heaven, the earth, and everything in there, so let there be praise. Which, by the way, was the psalm that we were finishing up on Monday, where it would say, God did this, and then the people would respond, all praise to him. God did this, all praise to him. That's where we get liturgy from. Okay? Now what happens here is, he's saying he made the heaven, the earth, and everything in them. Praise him. Do you know somebody that doesn't know the Lord? And they can look at the glory and the majesty of all of creation, or they wouldn't even call it creation, they would just call it the universe. And it, even though they can see it majestically, even though they can see it beautifully, even though they can see it and be awed by it, it doesn't provoke in them praise. They see the world differently. He keeps every promise forever. I believe that. And I've seen promises that I didn't think were fulfilled. Can you imagine what the person who doesn't know the Lord thinks when he sees people praying for things that don't happen? He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. Let's make something clear. You do realize that the reason why there's starvation in the world is not because there's a lack of food. There's plenty of food to feed the whole world. Lots of food goes to rot. The, the issue is that there are people, there's politics, that are keeping food from getting to certain people groups, and that's why they're starving to death. We're, we're, we can get the food there, we just can't get it there. See what I mean? So the issue is, is somebody looks at that, and I say, he does give justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. And somebody else says, no, he doesn't. There's starvation all over the place. The Lord frees the prisoners. We understand that in a metaphorical sense because we have been freed. Somebody who doesn't know this doesn't even know what that means. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, metaphorically and physically. I've seen both. I've experienced one and I've seen the other. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. See. I see these things in the world because of the eyes that God has given me. I was blind, and now I see. And I see the things that God is doing. And it causes me to look at all of these things and to see them with different eyes in a way that leads me to praise him. But that is not true for, it's not nine out of ten, but that's not true for a significant percentage of the world. They do not see it that way. And let's be clear, even Christians don't see it that way. I was sitting there in my soap on Thursday and I was going through this and I was just marveling at, at this thing. I, actually, I think it was Tuesday and Wednesday still and I just messed them up the way I did it. But, but, the, but the bottom line is, is I, I, was, I was seeing this and I was just, God, Lord was doing this for the sermon. And he was going, do you see how not everybody does that? And so I wanna say something to us Christians about other people. We really must quit projecting upon them what you are. And we really must hold, quit holding them accountable to what we see. I did something that I pray to God will be fixed one day. It is not yet. But I gave a sermon a month and a half ago and, and I had a particular person in mind that I love as much as I think I can love anybody. And this person doesn't know the Lord, and I, I was writing part of the sermon, and I did not have them in mind, but as I was writing it, they did come to mind. It wasn't just about them at all. I want to make that clear. But it was an argument that basically said, number one, you know, you need to, you need to know that God is doing these things, and if you don't believe them, there's plenty of proof out there, and it's kind of on you. And I knew when I said that that this person might react funny to it, but I kind of went, but I think it's true. And I had it in my heart. And then I went to another level, and I don't have to explain it, but the bottom line is, is I went to another level on it. And this person, again, it wasn't aimed at them, but I knew that they might react negatively to it. I felt like I should say it. I can tell you if I had it to do over again, I think I would still say it, but I would say it quite differently. 
Because in essence, I projected, I took this person and I, I thought that this was a compelling argument because it was compelling for me. And I can tell you, I do this all the time when I'm writing sermons. I think about who I'm going to be talking to and how they're going to respond to what I'm saying. But what I'm telling you is, is it damaged that relationship in a way that I grieve. I mean, I literally grieve. It's incredibly painful to me that I did that, and I have apologized to that person for doing that, even though my heart was to bring them to the Lord, so I should be okay, right? I don't give a rip what my rights are. I give a rip that I do what God tells me to do, and that I do it in the fullness of the Spirit that He told me to do it. And I don't think I did that there. I was hoping for something, and I took a risk, and it was stupid. You see it? We really have to get to a different place. We, this is the hate, hate book. Is it hate or hate? Does anybody know? Is it the, the righteous mind author? Anyway, the righteous mind. Anyway, see, he says, look, liberals perceive the very heavily on care harm. That's their primary value. And it doesn't mean they, they don't, don't all look like this. Not all liberals are exactly like this. This is just the average. And what they're doing is they are some loyalty and some authority and some sanctity, but you see that's much less feeding how they see the world. And every person is individual, and they take of the six, they mix and match differently, right? But pretty much we can, we can put liberals and progressives into a camp that looks roughly like that, and we can put conservatives into a camp, and this is what hate found as a liberal. We can put liberals in a camp, and most people would look at that and say, oh, well, conservatives are better because they're on all six. No, they're not. It's just the way that God made people. And I would have to say, of all the things that are up there, care and harm may be one of the most important things. So it's not bad if somebody is really oriented to care. Uh, this church is. We always put people before programs. We don't let the machine run over somebody. Okay? So it's not that one is better or worse. What it did for this author was, as a liberal, as he says, I came to appreciate what other people were seeing that I was not. And it made me not think of them as broken or damaged or screwed up or messed up or stupid. It made me think of them as thoughtful, reasonable, trying to get it right. See it? We gotta do this. I, you know, you realize, again, let's take it out of politics, and that's, this is politics, but it's not just politics. You realize in the Christian world this happens, right? This is love languages. This is the thing. A Christian author came up with this, and it's helped the whole world in their marriages. Because what it's saying is you speak one language in love, but your mate speaks another language, and it's not okay for you to keep talking to them in, in Russian if what they speak is English. You've got to speak to them in their language for them to feel it. So I just want to show you, here's Julie, I literally rank these. Number one is service, number two is time, three is gifts, four is tell, five is touch. Now, watch me. Her number one is my number five. Her number five is my number one. Or the other way around, her number one is my number five. You see it? Now I'm going to make this much worse for you because the truth is, I wish you could have seen Julie trying to rank them. Because she instantly knew that service was the big one. But the other one, she couldn't even rank because she was like, they just don't do that much for me. So Julie is one, two, three, four, five, service. And me, has anybody ever been with me when I didn't try and hug you and tell you that I love you? Yep. <laughs> right? Okay, and to the, to the chagrin of many people, whose number five is touch. Okay? Now, it's actually worse than that. Because the truth is, we, the kids and I play a game with Julie, and the game is, I've told you this before, but the game is, is that we will hug Julie as she wants to be hugged. She's a human being, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure, to show, I know she's, I'm not totally sure she's from this planet, okay? But, but what we do is we hug her, and we hold her, but then we keep holding her. And, and after a few seconds, she'll just go, oh, she just cannot take it, Right? So Julie is a negative 10 when it comes to touch. But I'm a negative 10 when it comes to service. I've never ever done anything for anybody but what I didn't feel like I was sacrificing horribly to do it for them. <laughs> and most of my life is doing precisely that. Which is the point. Some people just luck out. 
and they marry somebody who's really close to them in these five. And in that case, thank God you're going to have a nice, blissful marriage. You're really, when you get tired and everything else, you're just going to love them quite naturally. It's going to be great. Awesome, awesome. I love you. It's going to make it easy. Other people have to learn stuff. And I just want to say, God likes to teach stuff. And I've had to learn a lot about how to love somebody who spoke a different language than I did. It's been good. It's been super good. Are we getting it? If we're going to do outreach, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to quit projecting on them what we think they are. And we're going to have to listen to what they're saying they are. And then we're going to have to figure out what of God is in that and how we're to respond to that. And what is not God in that and how we're supposed to respond to that. Do you see it? It's not sweeping the differences under the rug. It's dealing with them in a much fuller richer way than we tend to because we're so conflict averse. We really have to learn that God will transcend the conflict. But you have to enter into the conflict for that to happen. We have to do something. In fact, let me show you the second thing in this passage. Didn't I heal ten? Where's the other nine? In baseball, we have something called a batting average. If, if, if the, every time you get in the batter's box, if one time out of 10 you hit the ball and get on base, then you have what we call a 100 average. If you do it two times two, three times three, four times four, we don't need to go higher than these because Ty Cobb, the highest lifetime ever was 366, meaning less than four out of 10 times that he got to the plate did he actually get a hit. Okay? And the greatest average for a season was 440 by Hugh Duffy. Now, both of these guys are in the Hall of Fame for this. Here's what you get if you bat 100. You don't even get an invitation to be on the farm team. You don't just not make it to the Hall of Fame. You don't make it to the bigs. You don't make it anywhere. They tell you, keep your day job and find something else because this ain't your wheelhouse, buddy. Right? Don't quit trying on this. You're only about 100. We're not, if you're a pitcher, okay, you can get away with it. Pitchers get away with a lot of things, but anyway. Okay? But do you get the drift? If you're batting 100. Now, now, here's what's being said in this story. And remember, Jesus told this to the disciples. Jesus modeled this to the disciples. He only batted 100. We can look at that and we can say this. Oh, this is totally bad. Let me make it clear. We can look at this and we can say this. Oh, I get it. There's certain people that don't have hearts to respond. So I tried. They didn't respond. So it's on them. I can leave. No problem. If you get that out of this sermon, you've got the wrong thing out of it. Because what Jesus was actually showing them was, is I only got it 100, but I didn't get freaked out about it. Let me, in fact, let me make it clear to you. It's not my responsibility who gets saved. That's not me. My responsibility is to get in the batter's box and, and respond to whatever God's throwing at me. See this? Get in the box. Get in the game. The outcome is not on you. Getting in the game is. If you refuse to get in the game, you can't get a hit. What are you supposed to do? This is where it gets easy. Have mercy. What did they ask him for? Mercy. What did he give them? Mercy. He did this all the time. They said to him, Lord, open our eyes. These guys were blind. Move with compassion. He touched their eyes. People in here know that? What's the Greek word for that? Splanitsome, okay? Splanitsome, it's a compassion. It means that when he saw somebody that something was wrong, that wasn't what God intended, that there was a, there was a, a, a lesson less than what God had intended in them, it broke his heart, it moved his guts. It made him churn on the inside. And he was going, I don't want that. And moved with compassion, he would reach out and touch and heal them. And in fact, that's called empathy, right? Which is just another word for what? Love. And whose image are we made in? Who is? When you don't get in the batter's box, 
you're not manifesting God's heart. Period. Love you. But when you're not willing to step up, step into it. Right? I'm that guy. If you would have taken a poll in my high school about who was the absolute least likely to ever find God, I don't know that there would have been a vote for anybody else. Anybody who knew me would have said, that guy is beyond repair. Okay, I'm, I, I make that as a joke, but I'm really not kidding you. I swear, if there was somebody sitting from my high school in here, they would say, yep. I never would have believed. And now I'm a pastor. You cannot know who's going to respond. I have seen the people that resist the absolute hardest get changed the absolute most. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Right? You cannot give up on somebody. I don't care how many times they've taken the bat out of your hands and swung it at you. Right? You've got to respond as Jesus responded. Love, love, love. It doesn't mean there's not confrontation. It just means that you're being who you were made to be. This is that phylactery thing that we looked at last week. And the phylactery is the Jewish people will take a piece of leather and they'll, they'll, the box, in that box is, here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord God, is one, the Shema. And they'll put it on their head. And what they're saying is, I want God's word and truth to be in my mind. But they understand it's not just about the mind. They understand it's about the heart. And so they tie that same word onto their arm because it's the closest thing to their heart. And what it does is that what they're saying is, it can't just be in my mind. It's got to come from my heart, down my arm, and then you see the wrap, the leather wrap, and it goes all the way out to the finger as if saying, it's got to go as far as it can possibly go. See it? It's got to get out there as far as it can go. i got to get my heart, God's heart. I'm his hands and his feet in the world, and I've got to go out. you got to get in the batter's box. What we're doing right now, please look in your packets. Stop and pray right here. Take this and put it by your door. You guys, those who have been here know what it is. The others, it's in your packet. Please take this, bring it home, stick it on your door of your office, your home. Take more. They're all over the place. You take these and you put them, and then whenever you're going out into the world, what you do is you look and you stop and you pray that God would use you. Right? But then we've done something else. We've added to it. This goes with you so that now you get to remember it all the time. This leather strip. And those who were here last week came forward and they picked up leather strips and they tied them on. If you tie a square knot on there, it'll, come off, it'll never come off. If you tie the other knot, it will come off. So hopefully you learn how to, t there's a knot that will make it where it doesn't ever come off. A square knot. Then go to Amherst. I'll show you how to do a square knot. Okay, I'll do it too. But the bottom line is, is what we're doing is, is you want to tie. Now, I, I got to say, I've, I know people are taking off for the showers and everything else. I'm doing it in the shower, and I got to tell you something cool that's been happening. As I go out, it's still wet, and it reminds me because there's something wet on my arm. That's not cool. But it reminds me to be his hand. And it bugs my skin. I'm a skin guy. I told you that earlier, right? So this bugs me. And it reminds me. May I never get desensitized to what it's reminding me to do. What we're going to do here today is I'm asking you if you did not get a piece of leather or if you've already lost yours. I don't care. Last week what we did is we had you come forward and pick one up and spend some time at the altar with God's sealing this. I am still going to ask that you come forward. Greg, go ahead. I'm going to ask you to come forward and to pick it up. But this time, would you just pick it up and go back to your seats? I'm asking you to come. I could have just put it in your pockets and made it easy for you. But I think there's something to you saying, I'm stepping out of the dugout, and I'm walking up to the batter's box. This is me walking up to the batter's box saying, I'm in. I'm in the game. So come up here, take up, pick up the bat. Okay? Go back to your seats. And then I want, what I want you to do is, is to have somebody at your seat tie a square knot. Okay? 
And then what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song and we're going to take communion. Thank you, Jesus. It's easy. It's easy. You got to, I don't need my I want you to back to your seats, pick up this, right in front of you there's two cups, Lord in Jesus' holy and precious name we lift the bottom cup in which is the bread and which is the body broken for me, which is the mistakes that I've made in the past, both the things I've done wrong, which is what we always think of, but today we think particularly of the things that I have failed to do. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you, God, in Jesus' name, that those, those things that I've failed to do have not only broken my life, but they've not allowed others to come into healing, which has helped to keep them in brokenness. So I put my finger in here today and I break this bread saying, Yes, the Lord. Oh. 